This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days In, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for Tuesday, September 27th, 2016, the I'm So Relieved edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura and... Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who may or may not have won last night's debate. I'm Jacob Weisberg. We have a special joint session. The nation, nation demanded it. Emergency joint session of Trumpcast and the Gap Fest. Uh, Jacob and I are in New York. We are joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, who I think is at the New York Times. I am. I am. Hello, hello. That's Synecdoche, I think. And then <laughs> joining us from, I'm not sure where, maybe in Hofstra. I think it's in Manhattan, not Schenectady. Oh. Uh, didn't Trump say something about Schenectady last night? <laughs> I own property there. Oh. Uh, that other voice is, of course, John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. John, where are you? I'm in New York City. So it's the morning after the first presidential debate, possibly the most watched presidential debate in history, a kind of uh, mash finale levels of interest in the debate last night. Emily Bazelon, who won the debate? <laughs> I thought that Trump was very effective in the beginning. Uh, his answers on trade, he was taking it to Hillary Clinton on the economy, and he has this pretty effective line about how, well, you've been in public office for 30 years. Why do we still have all these problems? Which, uh, it's his appeal in a nutshell. And then I thought he unraveled. He wasn't prepared. He couldn't really handle her going on the attack. You know, I was watching to see how she was going to try to needle him and get under his skin. And once she mentioned his dad and the money that his dad loaned him when he started out, he couldn't resist responding. And it was as if from there, he was just no longer in control. Jacob, is that point about her needling him do you think that is the the right lens? Do you th really think is he was unable to to resist that and that's what threw him off? Or do you think he was never on to begin with? I think he got an okay start mainly because Hillary didn't want to defend NAFTA and did, isn't has been a free trader who can't defend free trade. So that gives him an opening. But once she used the line about him living in his own reality, I thought it was downhill for him from there. I think she 
hit him in almost every vulnerability. His responses were flailing. He was unprepared. And when, when Lester Holt got to the birther issue, by that point, I thought Trump was finished in the debate. John, the early uh, exit polls after the, the debate, I, don't, I guess you don't have exit polls. The debate. <laughs> it's more like I'm sitting in a room, uh, focus groups after the debate, suggested that this was, in fact, a good night for Hillary. First of all, you know, do you agree with Jacob and, and Emily's assessment so far? But also, how much weight should we give to the sort of insta reactions to a debate? How how long does it take for the the, the consensus about its effect to set in? Well, I think uh, first on the question of of who did well, I think Trump lost more than Hillary Clinton won, but I think he lost in a pretty significant way. His big test in the campaign and specifically in the debate is whether he could fit himself into the presidency. And the campaign is a template for that. Everybody wants change. And uh, we know that. And he's the disruptor. But there's a limit, obviously, to the amount of change people want. You know, change is a haircut. Too much change is a decapitation. <laughs> so the campaign has been a test of whether Trump will uh, fit himself into the constrictions of a campaign sufficient to show people that he could do that then in office. And the debate was the perfect example of that. It was not just how he was going to behave in the actual debate itself, but was he going to sit down and do the minimum amount of work necessary to get through 90 minutes? And, you know, there was a lot of talk about how well he doesn't prepare the same way everyone else does. I thought that was all expectation lowering. But it turns out he basically winged it and used a lot of the things, as Emily said, that have been highly effective for him in the big rallies. But a debate is not a big rally. There are different expectations. It is the event in a campaign that looks most like the presidency in terms of its formality. And so when he was unprepared, it wasn't just that he didn't have an answer. It's that it meant he didn't prepare enough to have an answer. I mean, when he started talking about his son knowing about computers on the cyber question, his answer about nuclear weapons was absolutely all over the place. Um, that wasn't that he didn't have a third answer about, um, you know, ICBMs. It was that he didn't have a second half of a first answer. And so that lack of preparation, again, is about more than just his inability to answer questions. And then when under pressure, uh, Hillary Clinton said them like when she talked about her uh, support for TPP and and pretended she didn't say it was the gold standard as Jacob pointed out quite rightly Hillary Clinton is a mess on trade and she basically said I didn't say something that I said but if she was a 3 on the prevarication uh scale. He was like a six, seven, eight, or nine. Um, not only did he say he'd never said what he said about pregnancy being an inconvenience, not only did he say he never said what he said about global warming being a hoax, not only did he uh, say that he was against the Iraq war, all of these things have been fact-checked a million times, and yet he continued to say them. And then the granddaddy of them all was when he created an entirely new fiction about the birther story. Not only did he say he did it to get the president to release his birth certificate, which doesn't make any sense because he advocated that the president wasn't born in the United States for several years after he put his birth certificate forward. But then he created, he said that his recent interaction with the African-American community has taught him that, in fact, they welcomed his investigation into the president's birth, which is just an, an additional fiction on top of that. So not being prepared and then responding in that way. And then I guess finally my point would be if temperament is a question we talk about in the abstract, in the debate itself, you saw in real time temperament. And certainly in the clips that are being pressed on after the debate of him interrupting Hillary Clinton, it does not come across well his temperament in the moment, whereas she looks pretty much like she's weathering his interruptions and, and his pressing her. 
It, it's not clear to me that he actually knows what the word temperament means when he <laughs> described himself as having a winning temperament. He thinks it is, means temper. He thinks it means – I don't know what he thinks it means. I think it, he thinks I because I win at things, I have a winning temperament. It was That was a, an ex, extremely weird exchange. Uh, Jacob, going to, to John's point about his lack of preparation. Mm. So is there anything that you have learned in, in uh, your scholarship of Trump in the last six months that makes you think he will learn from this and that he actually could go – and discipline himself so that for a second debate or a third debate, appear to be a more prepared, more on top of it candidate? Or is he just, is he simply uh, temperamentally unable to do that? He's temperamentally unable to do that. I mean, the, the, the concern was that he would do that this time, that he would do a version of what Reagan did in 1980 and, and with very low expectations show up and seem competent and knowledgeable, not rise to the bait in the way he did. Um, so he had the opportunity to do that, and he couldn't have passed it up more completely. I mean, he didn't show discipline. His discipline lasted about eight minutes. And the other thing I thought was sort of striking was, you know, the opportunity in this debate was that he was speaking to the biggest audience he'll ever speak to, a much bigger audience than is tuned into the campaign to date. But he lacked context. If you came in in one of his answers, it sounded like he was talking to someone who was totally immersed in the the last two hours of the campaign. And, you know, I just said, I said to Sean Hannity, 654 million, he had all these numbers he was throwing around that even if you've been following it, you weren't even sure what he was talking about all the time. He didn't, he didn't locate his answers for people who had just showed up. Another another point about that, I think, and, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, Emily, is he, Trump is somebody who is so reactive to the mood of a room. He is somebody who who is he who does so much better when he is getting applauded or even jeered. That 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 is that he feeds off that energy. And to see him decontextualize like this in a, in a silent room, it must have been super disconcerting for him. He is just used to being in a place where people are cheering, applauding, and whooping. And to be in a place where, where there is no reaction, not even any really real reaction from the, the moderator or from his opponent, that must have thrown him, I think. Yeah, it was very unapprentice-like. And I think being alone on the stage with one other person who seemed determined to hold it together and keep quiet instead of um, adding to his kind of agitas, that seemed to also have a profound impact on him. He couldn't get away with playing one person off of the other like he did in the Republican primary debates. He couldn't bait someone into behaving badly themselves in a way that just dragged them down to his level. And so he just kind of flailed. John, you have said on the Gap Fest many times that People don't remember 90 minutes of debates. There's not a single 90-minute story. It's a, it's a series of, of composed incidents and moments. What do you think in a month or in, on November 10th when we look back, people will say, oh, that was the moment in this debate? Are there, are there moments that we will say that was an important single 15 seconds? It's a great question. We were looking for it right after, while the debate was going on, uh, to grab that moment and put it forward. I, and I'm not quite sure I know what it is. I mean, this debate, unlike previous debates, the the unraveling took place in the second half. In other words, a lot of times what happens is the narrative gets started in the beginning of the debate. That didn't happen here. I, And there is a larger picture that is the strongest thing that comes out of this debate to me, which is the 
the kind of stress test. It was a 90 minute stress test. And at the end, Donald Trump was not in as solid a shape as he was at the beginning. And it was sort of fitting that the debate at the end was about stamina, Hillary Clinton's stamina, when in fact, the answer and the back and forth was itself a test of stamina, and whether Donald Trump could retain the restraint of his first 10 to 15 minutes. And he said, you know, I never said uh, that she didn't have the presidential look. Well, yes, he did. It was kind of form and function were following each other. But I don't there isn't a moment when looking at at the way in which the Clinton campaign has chopped up the debate and used it to to uh, send out to their surrogates. One of the ones that I think is quite effective is is where Donald Trump is interrupting Hillary Clinton. I think it was either 17 or 28 times. I've seen two different versions watching all those clips together, which can easily be shared in social media, sends a picture about temperament that I think is pretty powerful. And so that's not one moment, it's an aggregate. But I think for the moment, that would be something that I would think might be what lives on. John, if I had to come up with a single adjective to describe Trump's performance, I I would call it disagreeable. Um, He was he was humorless. He was scowling. He was interrupting. He wasn't his worst self. He just failed to make himself. <laughs> his worst self is so is so bad that he has to get pretty bad. He, yeah, but but I mean, he just he failed to make himself appealing or pleasant in any way. I thought at any moment in the debate. I think that's right, Jacob. And that was one of his challenges that that everybody knew and that had been telegraphed, which was that he needed to put forth something for that constituency, the college educated voters, the the people who aren't the diehard Trumpsters. I one thing I would add is that Hillary Clinton. Uh, who had strong points, there was no lift in what she was saying. She totally lacks her husband's ability to explain how policy affects regular people and weave it into story and tell their uh, the tale. So if one of her tasks was to present her agenda in a way that made people rush to her, I didn't see that in the slightest. That is fair, but I'm going to defend Hillary Clinton. I think she had a really tough job, which was to stand on the stage with someone who, by her mere presence, she was conferring some of the dignity of the race and of the office onto him. She had to keep her distance. She had to not let him rile her. And she had to stay out of all the traps that sexism lays for women when they are up there in that kind of setting. And she came across, to me, as steady and competent. And there were moments where, you know, you're right, John, she didn't have like story, great stories to tell. And I also think she should do a better job in bringing the policy ideas down to earth. But there were moments of just kind of glee. She managed to laugh off these ludicrous barbs. There was even this little crazy shoulder shimmy she did when Trump was praising himself at one point. I think that was the I have a good temperament. I have a good temperament moment. And those images are super shareable in social media. And I thought they made her likable. What did you guys think? Emily, actually, just to to push on that a little bit, do you think there there was all this discussion going into this about her fade in the past few weeks and you know they're now tied in the polls the sense that people there's a huge uh, contingent of plague on both your houses voters in this election people who who think well yeah trump is trump's a bully and and a jerk but clinton is a criminal and uh do you think that her performance last night did the job of sort of indicating these are not two alike creatures I did. I thought she came off as like checking all of the boxes we are used to seeing for 
presidential candidates. They have mastered policy. They have experience. They know of what they speak. And they know how to present themselves at really key moments on the stage. I just think we shouldn't undersell the accomplishment that was, given the context, given the buildup, given all the pressure that she must have felt and that she was under. And the number of times where he did interrupt her and she had to figure out how to compose her face while he was saying something that was uh, wrong or an attack on her. I mean, she let pass a number of chances to go on offense, and I kind of wanted her to do more offense, but I'm not sure she was wrong because I think it also meant that she she didn't in any way embody the bully and the um, kind of disagreeable bear in a cage that Trump did. Why, uh, why John, should we possibly trust our morning after instincts about this debate when every single person in the media has essentially been wrong and wrong about in particular about how Trump is coming across and how Trump's going to do? Why would this this reaction uh, be one that we should feel confident about? Uh, I think you're exactly right to be wary, uh, both historically uh, with respect to this race and historically with respect to debates. Um, though they get a, a lot of coverage, it's often the case that the trajectory of the race going into the debate continues on after the debate. Now, having said that, we have a special race here. We have two highly unpopular candidates. And I think in the case of Donald Trump, and we've talked about this before, when the weakness of an event goes to the central question of the campaign, it has the potential to be more than just a meaningless moment. Um, uh, so when Hillary Clinton says something, uh, explains something in an unsatisfying way, it exacerbates her central problem with trust. When Donald Trump doesn't perform in a way, in a way that shows he cannot even accept the minimum constraints of the job he wants, that exacerbates his lack of restraint and temperament. And so I think that has the chance to, um, and particularly with that group of voters he's weak with. If I could just one tiny little point, I, I, Emily, I, I, I think you're right about all of the complex things Hillary Clinton had to say. I just meant in terms of a, the very specific political need that she had, which is to give people something to run to. I think that a lot of people who are Democrats will rush to her side because of the way she defended against those interruptions. But one one final thing, and uh, maybe somebody wants to jump at this, is on the fact-checking question. She did not fact-check Donald Trump on birtherism, which I think was a smart act of restraint because he was trying to draw her into a close fight about a thing where she doesn't need to defend herself because there's nothing there. But you could have imagined somebody wanting to defend themselves on whether she had any contributory role in the birtherism rumor. And by not engaging in that fight, I think it was uh, a smart piece of restraint on her part. Look, you have to be wary of your own reactions because we know how much people see these things through the lens of, of their own viewpoints. After the debate, I thought it was so overwhelming. The first thing I did after the debate was switch to Fox News to sort of see what they were saying on the other planet. And there was there a, a, a pretty pervasive acknowledgement that Trump had done terribly. I mean, I think, you know, there, there, are, there are margin cases and then there are clear cases. I don't really believe anybody who who argues that Trump w was was more effective in the debate. I mean, I just think it was like it was so loaded on one side that I don't think this well, is going to be one of those. Although cases. There's, there's there's was Trump more effective in the debate, and does it matter to the larger narrative of the race? Those are two separate questions. 
Yes. Well, I mean, I think here's what I would say. And, and, you know, John knows this this history so well, so he can point to some relevant examples. If a debate is going to matter, it's going to be the first debate. A debate is unlikely to to affect a re- significant reversal in the pre-existing dynamic. However, it can have a significant effect on the margins. You can get a three or four point bounce out of a debate. Yes, it usually dissipates, but in a close race, it can matter. I think she was ahead. I think this was his opportunity to maybe shift that dynamic, make the momentum go in the other direction. He didn't do that. And so that opportunity is lost to him. I guess that's how I'd frame the politics of it. Can we also talk about the end and the effect that that could have on women voters who are undecided? You know, these Republican women who don't necessarily love Hillary, but have some reservations about Trump. I mean, I just felt my feminist blood boiling as he was denying that he hadn't said that she wasn't presidential in her looks. I thought that was a quadruple negative, Emily. (laughs) (laughs) I thought her response was um, was effective and that she just embodied in that moment women on the public stage in a way that they shouldn't have to defend themselves. It felt to me exactly the way I felt watching Carly Fiorina, not a politician I am fond of, but when she also had to talk about what it's like to be attacked in this way by Donald Trump, I felt an intense feeling of solidarity with her. And I wonder if um, that crazy dribbling ending from Trump where he didn't try to apologize or deny, he just went on the attack against Rosie O'Donnell as if like that was the one groove in his brain he could find. I wonder if that can have some kind of lasting impact. That was the night that uh, that was the moment that was sort of staying with me as I was falling asleep. All right. Last substantive question here to you, Jacob, on the taxes issue. I thought that that was very effective attack by Hillary Clinton just to sort of pose a series of rhetorical questions. Do you think that's going to have weight or legs? She did the best she could do on it, and she was very good. I mean, she hit every plausible reason why he's not releasing his taxes, because he doesn't pay any taxes, which he essentially interjected and acknowledged to be true. So I guess that's not why he's hiding them. He's proud of that, um, that he gives no money to charity, that he has— We also know that to be true. We also know that to be true, that he has or makes much less money than he claims— or there's something really embarrassing about his ties to Putin or, or mob ties in there. So she really kind of got all of the right insinuations. And he just clings. It's one of these cases where it doesn't matter how many times you say his answer is preposterous. He clings to this fiction that he can't release his taxes because he's under audit. Of course, being audited is the reason politicians don't want to release their taxes, that the, the, the IRS might find something in there. Once you're being audited, there's really no reason not to give them up. But he's going to say that until the day he dies. Do you think, John, there's any chance in hell that we get his taxes before the election? No, I just don't see it. I mean, they're big and convoluted. And as his son also admitted recently, uh, they don't want to talk, have the taxes out there and have everybody pick apart each little small thing. I just can't. Um, I mean, only unless it were a diversion by uh, uh, from some other massive problem. The bigger thing is his central qualification and temperament, which is uh, uh, that's why I thought while Hillary Clinton turned that expertly and showed all that preparation she had. I'm wondering whether that actually is what people are talking about in two days uh, after the debate. All right. Quick round, Robin. Let's each pick our favorite. The moment that you turned to your loved one that you were sitting with or where you gasped or like, holy cow, I'm going to just start with mine, which was when 
which went past fairly quickly. He when Trump said "your president," did you guys notice that when he he referred to Obama as "your president"? Which yeah, I thought I, was I, like that is out of the rule. That is out of the bounds of our our normal convention. It is our president, the American president. He's your president too, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I had that. I I was like, that's revolting, and that was an instinct. That was not. That was not premeditated. Right. That's how he thinks. Yeah. So that was mine. Yeah. Emily, did you have a moment where you where you gasp or or cheered? Well, I was struck by the little aside about how he just opened a hotel right next to the White House. So one way or the other, he was going to be showing up on Pennsylvania Avenue because I'm not convinced that he truly deep in his heart cares that much about becoming president. And I felt like that was his plan B. That was his like magic carpet. And he was already ready to take it for a ride. John, did you have a moment? Well, I thought on the birther question when he suggested that his new interaction with the African-American community uh had taught him that that they were happy that he had spent five years pushing the idea the president was not a citizen. Like there's a, there's not much more room that he could go in terms of filling out the fiction of that both original story and then the story that he has created to explain why he suddenly changed his mind after five years of advocacy. And yet he continued one more uh, step down the lane. And I just thought he knew this was coming. The fact that he didn't have a better answer and the fact that he continued to assert that this was an example of how he is a closer just felt like deeply problematic and and demonstrated a structural flaw. Because if you were strategically thinking it through, you would think, this is turf I don't want to be on, period. Anytime we're talking about race as a question of race, I'm losing. If we're talking about law and order... That's good for me. So I need to find a way to take this little grenade and I need to have it, you know, basically deal with it quickly and then move on. And instead, he went on this long riff. That was a, a, a big mistake and, 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 and a sign of something greater and a bigger problem. Jacob, did you have a moment? Uh, one was the, just the casual racism of his answer about uh, black and Hispanic neighborhoods where he just sort of described this horror. You go there, you get shot. You know, and I think he has this picture of the way minorities live in cities that's like the middle of the riots in, in Baltimore or something. And, you know, it seemed to me then th- this this idea that he's trying in some way to appeal to African-Americans while he, he just fundamentally thinks they live in such a horrifying and debased way in Jacob, general. He opened a club in West Palm Beach and they were allowed. They were totally allowed to belong. <laughs> and he got lots of credit so, <laughs> for it and lots of lavish praise. So I don't yeah. even know what Simply you're talking Simply for about. opening the doors in an unrestricted <laughs> manner. Okay, so the next debate, which John is going to tell us the date of in a minute, is a town hall debate. It is with an audience. Emily, do you think the dynamic of that debate is going to be different? Do you expect a stronger Trump performance? Do you, do you expect Democrats to start getting anxious and fretful the way they were yesterday? I think he it's a better environment for him for the reasons we were talking about. He'll be able to play to the crowd. He bounces off of them, whether they're for him or against him. But I also think that this debate is going to kind of linger in the air and he may come in with a kind of chip on his shoulder. I also wonder if he's going to cancel the next debates because he just didn't like the one, the way this one went. I mean, they're sort of already laying the groundwork for that. Giuliani said right after the debate, he wouldn't do it again. They're attacking Lester. Really? Holt. Yes. Really? really? Yes. They can't Truly. back it. They, he can't do it. He can't back out. 
He I don't know. We'll see. Back out. You know, that attacking the moderator for being very unfair. All of that. That's a way of saying the system is rigged. I'm not playing your game. I'm taking my ratings elsewhere. John, is there any chance he cancels? And also, when is the second debate? Uh, the second debate. <laughs> well, there's a vice presidential debate in between. But October 9th is the uh, is the next debate. And the VP debate is on the 4th. For those of you marking your calendars, I think it would be highly, highly damaging to not participate in any more debates. It would it would ratify the conventional wisdom about this one, which was that he lost. Uh, and the pick up your marbles and go home would not look good to that constituency that he needs uh, to build his coalition, which is among college-educated voters that Republicans usually win. They're least susceptible to the, the sort of rigged argument. And as Jacob was saying, if Fox News and Corey Lewandowski are saying that Trump lost, then it's not just a, a fiction by the mainstream media. There's a bit of an objective argument here. Uh, I would just say one other thing about um, the town hall. I think the hardest debate for Hillary Clinton will be Chris Wallace. He is a tough, fair questioner, and he will be tough on both of them. He will ask Hillary Clinton questions about Benghazi and about email, her email server. And those are questions where she has given lots of answers. And the problem is the answer she gives. And I thought Emily's phrase was quite right about Donald Trump, where, where he fit into the grooves, you know, the one groove he could find. When Hillary Clinton is asked about the server uh, or about Benghazi, she goes into established grooves. And we've seen over time that those grooves are not appealing to people. They think she's not telling the truth. And so uh, the third debate in which there's likely to be more of that conversation will be more dangerous for her. One thing I would say about the town hall is the interaction is person to person. And that's something that Donald Trump doesn't have a lot of preparation for from the campaign trail. He does big rallies, but he doesn't do the coffee clutches in the way that Hillary Clinton has. And so if you go back and look at the 92 debate with Clinton in Richmond and Perot and Bush, that'll be what the Clinton team will be preparing for. And it'll be just interesting to see if Donald Trump, the, the audience vibe won't be the, the kind where there will be all like a bunch of cheering. Uh, it'll be all independent and undecided voters. And having to interact with them on, on a one-to-one basis with the question will be a new thing to watch Donald Trump do. Let's end on that note. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and for Jacob Weisberg of Trumpcast, I'm David Plotz. We'll be with you on Thursday for a regular GabFest. Thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.